Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Don't you just love the shameless chutzpah of these guys in this story? In the Yiddish dictionary under chutzpah, there's a picture of these guys cutting a hole through the roof. Here's how it all goes down. Jesus starts off his ministerial career with a bang. He's healing all kinds of broken, sick and pe- broke and sick people. He heals an epileptic and then a leper and then some people with dangerously high fevers. And not only that, but he turns out to be a mesmerizing hotshot of a preacher who draws crowds Joel Osteen would be proud of, except that basketball arenas like Mr. Osteen's in Houston hadn't been invented yet, and even the Colosseum in Rome is still 50 years away. So Jesus' huge congregations crowd into these tiny Palestinian homes. And one day these four friends decide they're going to get Jesus to heal their paraplegic friend. But the house where Jesus is preaching is more crowded than Soldier Field when the Packers are in town. And these guys are in the last row of the nosebleed seats and can't see Jesus for love or money. And then one of them has a eureka moment. In these first century Palestinian homes, you see the staircase to the roof is on the outside of the house. And so up it, they tote their precious cargo. The roof is a thatch of mud and straw laid over cross beams. So when they get there, these four friends take a pickaxe and a shovel to the roof. They start sawing through the timber. Dirt and sawdust starts raining down on Jesus' head. And then a stretcher floats gently and magically down to the floor at Jesus' feet. In Greenwich, Connecticut, where I lived for a long time, I served on the board of directors of the local local ambulance corps. We called it GEMS, Greenwich Emergency Medical Service. And so I was sort of the unofficial chaplain to all the paramedics and EMTs at GEMS, EMTs, the emergency medical technicians. And I sort of like to think of these paraplegics' friends as the patron saints of paramedics and EMTs. Anybody who takes your vitals, loads you onto a stretcher, packs you into the business end of of an ambulance with menacing instruments and inscrutable technologies, cranks up the wailing siren, turns on the flashing lights, and delivers you to the great physician. During my preparation for our Civil War classes, I'm meeting all of these interesting and beautiful people, including Clara Barton. Clara Barton was born in Massachusetts in 1821 and started her professional career as a teacher, but then she somehow got it into her head that she wanted to work for the federal government. Lord knows why. So she went to Washington and somehow got a job as a patent clerk. She may have been the first woman ever to work for the federal government. But she was not the only one who was arriving in Washington in the early 1860s. All of these wounded Union soldiers were straggling there looking for food and water and medical care. And so it wasn't long before Clara Barton gave up her day job in the patent office to care for these wounded soldiers. And then it wasn't enough for them to come to her. She went out to them at the front lines. She was there at Antietam, Fredericksburg, 
and second Bull Run. She was so close to the action that one time a bullet pierced the sleeve of the dress she was wearing. Along with her exact contemporary Florence Nightingale over in England and Europe, Clara Barton was the mother of the modern nursing profession and also, by extension, paramedics and EMTs. She talked about caring for one youth who, on the verge of death and perhaps a little delirious, thought Miss Barton was his sister Mary. Always a truth teller and suffering a stab of conscience at the moment, Clara just couldn't bring herself to call him brother. So instead, she kissed his forehead and she said later, the kiss of my lips enacted the falsehood my voice couldn't speak. The kiss of my lips enacted the falsehood my voice couldn't speak, she said. Anyway, back to Mark's little story. Sod, straw, and sawdust start raining down on Jesus like he's in a landslide. The roof is literally caving in on him. And then this stretcher falls miraculously to his feet. And this is the part of the story I love. Mark tells us that when Jesus saw their faith, not the faith of the paraplegic, but the faith of the friends, when Jesus saw their faith, he turns to the paraplegic and says, your sins are forgiven you. Stand up. Pack up your stretcher and push it home. Isn't that why we stay committed to the church? This limping camaraderie of the lame, the halt, the blind, and the broken? Isn't it because when we can't take another step under our own power, we know someone will come along and carry us to Jesus? Four friends, maybe, each at a corner, one with a shovel, one with a pickaxe, another with a straw, and a fourth with rope and pulleys. Emory University homiletics professor Tom Long says he once had a friend who lost his young wife to cancer at the age of 45. She died two weeks before Easter, and he just couldn't bring himself to drag himself to church. He hadn't missed a Sunday at church for 10 years until his wife got ill, but he just couldn't conceive of standing there and singing with the congregation, Jesus Christ is risen today. His grief had crushed his faith and stolen his voice. But Easter morning early, his friends come to retrieve him at his front door, and they won't take no for an answer. They hustle him into the car and drag him to church. And, you know, to be honest, it didn't help. He felt just as badly after the service as he did before it. He stood politely with the rest of the congregation as they sang the hymns, but he did not sing a word. He was silent and sad and sedimentary as stone. Jesus Christ is risen today, they'd all shouted at the top of their lungs to organ and trumpet accompaniment. But then, of course, the days and the weeks and the months pass by and time or God or something or someone begins to heal his broken heart. And the man tells Dr. Long, I remember thinking that it would have been deceitful for me to sing about resurrection so soon after my wife's death. I didn't believe in resurrection. But I also remember thinking that my friends in church were singing the hymns for me. They were believing in resurrection for me. They pressed their faith 
in service for me when I had none to know and none to give and none to sing. Mark tells us that when Jesus saw the friend's faith, he said to the paralytic, stand up, pack up your stretcher, and push it home. What Mark wants to tell us is that faith is communicative. Faith is viral. Faith is contagious. You can catch it from your friends. Have you ever been so paralyzed by grief that you could not walk? Have you ever been so crippled by injury or illness that you could not stand? Have you ever been so dispirited by disappointment that you were pinned almost literally to your bed? Have you ever been so deep down in the slough of despond that you could not tell whether the sun were shining and you did not care? And when that happened, did four friends come racing to your cot, each at a corner, and did they help hustle you to where help was waiting, and did they drill holes through every obstacle till they dropped you gently at the feet of the Lord near the touch of the great physician? Who here has a story about friends coming to your aid with a shovel, a pickaxe, a saw, and a rope, never giving up till they've dropped you at Jesus' feet? Who here doesn't, right? I'm going to tell you one of my stories, and in the next few days or weeks you can tell me yours. <laughs> my children spent their early years, their preschool years, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a couple of miles from all four of their grandparents. They were very fortunate that way. My parents and my wife's parents helped to raise my children. But then when my son was nine and my daughter four, we moved a thousand miles away. And so the first thing we did when we reached Connecticut was we had to find them a substitute grandparent. And George wanted the job. He was 75 years old at the time. His 100-year-old mother had just died. He'd been an only child, no brothers and sisters. He'd never married. He had no children. He had not one single living relative on this planet. And so George needed a family, and we needed a grandfather. George is gone now, but he was part of my family for 15 years, every single holiday, birthday, many Sunday afternoons. George was a devout Roman Catholic, the most devout Roman Catholic I had ever met. So he went to Mass every Saturday evening in Greenwich so that he could worship on Sunday morning with the Presbyterians. He was actually born and raised on the south side of Chicago. He was a brilliant student and a champion gymnast at the University of Chicago. And when he graduated from the U of C in the early 40s, the United States Army snatched him up and sent him to the University of Michigan to learn Japanese. How could I not have loved him with his master's degree from Michigan? So George was sent by the army to Tokyo as a spy before they dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And George was on the USS Missouri when Admiral Nimitz and General MacArthur were there to watch the Japanese surrender. And after the war, George came home to Chicago to work in radio advertising. And then this new phenomenon came along called television. And its epicenter was in New York. And George wanted to be where the action was. So he went to New York. And his office was in Rockefeller Center. And he'd tell me that at his lunch hour, he would 
wander out onto one of the terraces in 30 Rock and watch the Rockettes rehearse in all their leggy splendor. And he moved to Greenwich when he retired. When George was 85, they found a tumor under his jaw and it had to be surgically removed and the surgery went very well. But George was old and weak and he had tubes and drains coming out of the wound and we couldn't send him alone back to his modest apartment. And my wife and I would have taken him home with us, but we were scheduled to go on a mission trip to Honduras and I didn't know what to do. So I drove to the hospital when he was discharged and when I get there, there he is sitting on the edge of the bed in his street clothes with his bagged packs, ba bags packed, ready to go. Home? No, not home. I didn't know where. I didn't know what I was going to do, so I paged my friend Phil. Phil's a Presbyterian elder at my church and also the chief of surgery at Greenwich Hospital. I call Phil for all my medical emergencies. If I need an antibiotic, I call Phil. If I sprain my ankle, I call Phil. If I think my daughter has strep throat, I call Phil. He is my Dr. Phil. He is to the First Presbyterian Church of Greenwich what your own Dr. Phil, Phil Jones, was to Kenilworth Union. And so in the present medical emergency, I was calling Phil to see if Phil could set me up with the visiting nurse association or something, any, anybody to care for Phil while we were away, and I'm in George's room. And so I page Dr. Phil, and 90 seconds later, he wanders into George's room wearing surgical scrubs, and one of those hairnets you wear in the operating suite. He'd obviously just come from his own surgical case. And I said, Phil, what took you so long? And I start to unfold my dilemma. And before I can get two sentences out, Phil turns to George and says, George, I think you need to go to a rehab facility for a week or two to get stronger. And George says, not on your life. I'm not going to one of those places. They have only old people there. People die there. And Dr. Phil says, George, this one's different. This one is called 96 Perkins Road. And George says, well, I've never heard of it, and I'm not going there. But what George doesn't know is that 96 Perkins Road is Phil's home address. My 85-year-old friend was going home with the chief of surgery at Greenwich Hospital. George found that to be an acceptable solution. <laughs> On the way home to 96 Perkins Road, George makes Kathy and me stop at his apartment to pick up his best three-piece suit from the Nixon administration, his polished wingtip shoes, and his most expensive tie because George is from a different generation and he's going home with the most distinguished physician in Fairfield County and he wants to be presentable. When we get home seven days later from Honduras, George is just fine and back in his own apartment. From one perspective, my friend George is one of the loneliest people on the planet. No living relatives, no children, no children. As far as I know, he's never even had a lover. But from another perspective, my friend George was rich as Croesus. He was like that other George, George Bailey, 
from It's a Wonderful Life who discovers eventually that no man is poor who has friends. Sometimes I'm so paralyzed by grief that I cannot stand or so crippled by illness that I cannot walk. But then these four friends show up and they drill holes through every obstacle till they lower me at the feet of Jesus. And when Jesus sees their faith, not my faith, but their faith, he turns to me and he says, friend, stand up, pack up your stretcher, and push it home. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.